according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Join me one more time, if you would, in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, resuming our study on the Mount Olivet Discourse. Episode 12 in the Jesus final uh, week of work at Jerusalem. Episode 12 is Jesus tells the future, and uh, primarily it's the first half of what we typically call the Mount Olivet Discourse. Chapter 25 will have its own uh, point of study, uh, episode 13, in the, uh, in the Harmony of the Gospels, and we'll get to that here shortly. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that distractions are set aside, that we are uh, prepared to study eternal truth, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that it is for us to assemble together. Father, there are so many places around this world that uh, believers are not permitted to, uh, to own a building like this or put a sign out front or to meet openly, Father, as we do. And we thank you for the freedom that we continue to enjoy. We don't take it for granted. It is your grace provision. We acknowledge that. We thank you for it. We, we bless your name and praise you for what you have supplied. I thank you that we have brothers and sisters here today that are here because they want to be here, and that we ask that you would reward that decision, that you would bless our time in your truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. We um, left off. I feel like I've been gone 100 years. I just missed a single Sunday. Um, but we left off with point seven in the outline, and that's what I want to get back to again today and follow it up maybe in a better order with point eight. But if you look with me at Matthew chapter 24 and verse 3, you'll see the order of the questions that the disciples ask. And so, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And question number three, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Important that we understand the context for this. They're leaving the temple. He's had his final public message, the final public message being the seven woes pronounced upon the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites from Matthew 23. And so as he's coming out from the temple, we see in verse one, he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And this is his uh, prophetic message regarding the destruction of the temple. In fact, it's very much in agreement with the uh, Old Testament prophets. And we should probably see some of those passages here coming up later this morning. And so uh, they have questions related to that, questions related to the destruction of the temple. But that's not all. I think that the phrase, these things, in verse 3, tell us when will these things happen. There's a plurality mentioned with these things. And as I look at, uh, he says, do you not see all these things in verse 2? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another. That seems to be a single concept that has more attached to it. And I think in the larger picture, you, know, you want to connect uh, you want to connect it with his message at the end of verse 23, that your house is being left to you desolate. 
uh, and that his return cannot occur until national repentance takes place. In verse 39 of chapter 23, the last verse of that chapter, I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as we take a look at these questions about these things, when will these things be? There is a lot in view. Your house is being left to you desolate. And that, of course, references the destruction of the city, the no more temple, the circumstances have lasted now for 2,000 years of church history. Um, basically, the time in between the rejection of the king and the acceptance of the king. All right. And uh, so your house is being left to you desolate. That's a concept that has to be addressed. And then you will not see me until you say that is the national repentance of Israel necessary for the second advent of Jesus Christ. And uh, we've had studies on that as well. And then the third item in view here is actually not one stone left upon another from chapter 24 and verse 2. And so they ask, when will all these things happen? Not just these things, but all these things. So they have three questions. And under point uh, 7, I listed those three questions for you and gave you a scripture outline for when the answers come to those questions. Because they ask question one, question two, question three, but he does not answer them in that order. And so if in your own way you want to list them as one, two, three, that's fine. ABC, that's fine. All of Beth Gimel, that's fine. However you want to organize these three questions. Okay. Understand the answers in the order that they're given. So question number one, when will these things happen? And the answer to this is not found in Matthew 24. The answer to this is not found in, in uh, Mark 13. Uh, with respect to the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, the, the one that would happen within a generation of, of, uh, of this message being spoken, in other words, the 70 A.D. Roman destruction of Jerusalem, that description is found in Luke. Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. So Luke records Jesus' answer to this question, but Matthew and Mark omit it. Then question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? He will answer that question, but he will save his answer for the very end. That question he answers last. Jesus answers this question last after he answers the last question first. So what will be the sign of your coming? All right. What will be the sign of your coming? Short answer. Um, the whole sky going black and one single sign appearing in the, in the sky. I believe it to be a star. All right. One single sign appearing in the sky after the sky goes black. And then what will be the sign of the end of the age? That's their third and final question. And they actually view it, they kind of view these as interchangeable, as all synonymous. And that's simply a reflection of their confusion, a reflection of the... Of the um, blending of these messages and it's not their fault uh prophetically first advent and second advent passages were all combined into a single you know messianic expectation so they do expect that his coming will be the end of the age that's true but uh, there are distinct signs for each event and they must be broken down into their precise order and this is why although we can list their questions one two three we do a much better job listing his responses and using his responses to sort out the confusion, using his responses to give us a very clear sequence. That way we don't end up being post-millennial. That way we don't end up being uh, preterist. That way we don't end up being, uh, you know, replacement theology. In fact, I think if you utilize a literal hermeneutic in the Olivet Discourse, 
between the Olivet Discourse and what we have coming up in the in the Upper Room Discourse, I think that our hermeneutic uh, helps us to unlock more confusions just with these episodes right here. So it's uh, it's worth taking our time to uh, to to uh, kind of slow down a little bit and make sure we're solid on this. All right. So question one, question two, question three. He answers the uh, the last question first in Matthew. And then the second question, and he never answers the first question at all, not in Matthew 24, okay? We will get to these answers here in turn. By the way, under point C, we dealt with this last, last week, uh, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answers this question, and he does so in two parts. He answers first by describing what is not yet the end. And so we have the not yet answer. And then he goes on to describe the sign of the end. Very important. And, and it's actually true in the Matthew uh, record. You have the not yet portion followed by, okay, this is the sign, which is the abomination of desolation set up in the temple. Uh, same thing in Mark. You have the not yet message followed by the sign. All right. The sign of, his, of the uh, end of the age. And then in Luke, you have the not yet portion just like you have in Matthew and Mark. But instead of moving on to give the sign of the end of the age, that's the moment when um, in Luke 21, 20 through 24, he actually goes to answer question number one in the record of what, what Luke wrote there. And you'll see that here under point eight. So under point seven, I'm giving you A, B, and C, the three questions in the order that the disciples are asking them. In point eight, I'm going to give you the Lord's three answers in the order in which he gave them. So under point eight, let's take a look at question number three. We'll start with question number three. What will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And he answers first by the not yet circumstances followed by the actual answer, the sign of the end of the age. He answers first by the not yet circumstances, followed by his answer to the specific question, the sign of the end of the age. And so in Matthew 24, we're going to read verses 4 through 14 for the not yet portion. And then we'll read 15 through 28 for the actual sign, okay, which is when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. All right. And so Matthew 24, 15, connected with Daniel, is, uh, is going to be important for us to take a look at. And it solves a lot of the false teaching that's out there these days if you appropriately use a literal hermeneutic, the plain language of the text, and uh, you don't insist on twisting things around to match up with your theology. All right, answered by the not yet circumstances, followed by the sign of the end. Same thing in Mark. If we were to read the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, we have verses 5 through 13 which is the not yet portion, uh, basically the beginning of birth pangs, the uh, wars and rumors of wars, the uh, earthquakes and famines. These things uh, are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Uh, these things are not yet the end. And we'll see that. And then once you complete verses 5 through 13 in Mark 13, then you move on to verses 14 through 23. And you have the sign Described And once again, it's the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet. The Gospel of Luke, the not yet circumstances are given in Luke 21, verses 8 through 19. And then in Luke's narrative, he does not 
go on to describe the abomination that causes desolation. He doesn't even go there because in Luke's narrative, he records the content that references question number one. Uh, in Luke's narrative, he goes on to describe the Lord's answers to the uh, first century Roman destruction of Jerusalem. So uh, that's why we have omitted by Luke on the screen there for the second half of the answer to question number three. All right. Does that make sense? Am I confusing anything? Question number three, the Lord answers that first, but he answers it in two halves. The not yet half and the, okay, here's the sign half. All right. So it should be fairly simple. But now, again, uh, I think as we just simply glance, and I'm going to use Matthew as my basic text. We won't need to turn to the others, I don't think, for a whole lot today. Um, but you'll notice um, the not yet statements, like in verse 6. Uh, that is not yet the end. All right. And then in verse 8, uh, these are merely the beginning Okay. And then in um, verse uh, 13, well, there's other uh, time. There's all kinds of time references. So you've got the uh, not yet the end in verse 6. You've got the merely the beginning in verse 8. Then you have a then in verse 9. And you have an at that time in verse 10. You see that? And it's, it's funny because the then and the at that time are the same Greek word. Uh, but they, they, I guess, gave a variety of translations there so as not to be too pedantic, perhaps. So you have an at that time in verse 9 and at that time in verse 10. And then, uh, then you have a mention of the end in verse 13, the one who endures to the end. But you're not quite there yet until you get to 14 because uh, then you have then the end will come by the time you reach verse 14. So it's important that you see in verses 4 through 14, you still haven't reached the end. Even in ver even uh, the things in the first part of verse 14 have to precede, then the end will come. That finishes the sentence. You notice that? Then the end will come. And so everything through 14, including 14, has to precede the end. It's not until verse 15 that we actually start seeing the end described and what is the sign of the end of the age therefore when you see and the sign will be visible the sign will be what they are to see they are looking for this sign when they see it that will be their sign and then they'll know they are at the end all right first of all please understand sub point a this subject is ripe for misleading and fear-mongering this subject is ripe for misleading and fear-mongering. The misleading we see in verses 4 and 5, and the fear we see in verse 6. The same pattern continues in Mark and Luke. The subject is ripe for misleading. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, and fear-mongering, verse 6. The Mark and Luke equivalents, misleading is Mark 13, verses 5 and 6. The fear is mentioned in verse 7. Same thing in Luke. Misleading is mentioned in Luke 21, 8. And fear, actually terror in Luke, is mentioned in Luke 21, 9. Why is it the adversary wants to mislead you? Why, what is the purpose for the deception? 
we're told here is specifically to promote fear, promote um, the terror. A little bit stronger vocabulary found in the Gospel of Luke. Of course, the adversary's got many reasons for misleading, but think about how functional, how, how effective he is when uh, believers are walking in fear instead of walking in faith. Think about how uh, poorly um, uh, decisions are made when they're made out of fear instead of faith. Anytime he gets believers with our eyes off the Lord, then right away he's putting himself in the advantageous position. Because believers that make decisions based on fear are going to be bad decisions. Or based on lust are going to be bad decisions. Or based upon jealousy are going to be bad decisions. Anytime he gets our eyes off the Lord and we get into these other realms, (laughs) bad decisions. And we're going to be vulnerable. He can manipulate those particular realms. And so we see it here. See to it that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. Now, This is one of those um, goes without saying statements, right? It's it's a verse that you can actually make that. You can put that phrase in front of every verse of the Bible. See to it that no one misleads you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? You could put that phrase in front of every verse in the Bible. And so (laughs) where it actually is found is a realm of teaching that the Holy Spirit is making very clear that this is one that is ripe for false teaching. The, the devil loves to manipulate this. We see this with rapture teaching in in First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians. They'd been led astray that uh, the day of the Lord had already come. You understand? So see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many. It's actually very effective false teaching. And, and there's scads of folks that plunge into bad eschatology every day. And we've got to understand that. And, and hopefully we can have some patience towards some folks that, uh, that are born again, they're saved, they're our brethren in Christ, but they are just out there in a mixed-up eschatology. Do we have enough grace and, and, uh, and compassion to, uh, you know, not cut them down or mock them or, or, or you know, um, lord it over them that, uh, that we're right and they're wrong? <laughs> Even though we are, we need... <laughs> To have the grace, to have the uh, maturity, the gentleness, we're told, with gentleness correcting those that are in opposition, that if perchance God may grant them repentance, they may come to a knowledge of the truth. Because uh, this is the sad thing. It's, it's more than just you say, well, okay, they got the wrong view. Okay, so what? I think it's more than a so what. I think it has practical impact. I think it enslaves them. A bad eschatology will have consequences in how they conduct their lives and how they, uh, in a lot of other realms. All right. So, if you know, there, there's other things I'll agree with you. Other things, I, I, I put the beginning of the humanity of Christ, I put the hypostatic union before creation of the universe. Other people, most, put the hypostatic union at the manger in Bethlehem. That, uh, or the, the impregnation of the virgin, basically. That until, uh, until there was a body in the womb, uh, God the Son was just God the Son, and He was not the God-man. Okay? And I think it's a more mature view to view the firstborn of all creation as just that, that the beginning of the humanity of Christ was before His works of old. And I think that, that my understanding of hypostatic union encompasses greater Scriptures. 
encompasses Colossians 1, encompasses Proverbs 8, encompasses Genesis 2, it encompasses a lot of things. Okay? But here's the difference. I don't split hairs or I don't dispute. I think that you can have a different understanding of hypostatic union and it's not going to have a functional difference in your life. Not like a flawed eschatology is going to have. Okay? That's the difference. It's ripe for misleading and it's ripe for fear-mongering. Every time we have the misleading mentioned, it's followed by fear. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. See that you are not frightened. And think about the believers you know or the unbelievers you know. Think about who is frightened by current events. Think about who is frightened by the news. All right? Whether it's cable television news or radio news or newspapers. People still read those? Or uh, <laughs> other sources for current events information. Think about who has stability and who does not. Think about who has faith and confidence because they know that God's plan and program is advancing from alpha to omega and he hasn't missed a beat yet. And think about that. There's a lot of people that are very afraid. They're, they're afraid over a debt ceiling limit next Tuesday. They're afraid over um, a downgrade in our credit rating, see, which I think is lunacy. We should have been downgraded years ago. <laughs> I think uh, there are there's some very real fears out there about the economy, about their, if you're unemployed and, and your, um, your mortgage is coming up, of course. You're going to have some concerns. But uh, let's not allow ourselves to be plunged into fear that uh, the adversary would promote and, uh, and manipulate. When you have a biblical eschatology, when you understand the trumpet could sound any minute, when you can understand we're not going to be here to see Antichrist and, and hell on earth, okay? 200 million demons are going to come out of the abyss and are going to fill this planet. Does that scare you? No. But for those that are left behind, that's a, uh, that's a burden, isn't it? It's a concern. So if you have a proper eschatology, I think you have stability. Without it, you're ripe for fear. And that includes unbelievers and mistaught believers. So this subject is ripe for misleading and fear-mongering. And so we have the fear that's mentioned there. Secondly, um, before I start taking you through these events... Well, let's, okay, let me read through and then we'll go back to the top. See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then... They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then, or at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. All right, so this is the, uh, complete, the, the complete outline of the not yet portion. 
All right, this is the complete outline of the not yet portion. Then we have, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then, at that time, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And we'll start, I'll save this for uh, for next week, but... Uh, after verse 15, we're getting to the end. We're getting to the great tribulation, the second half of the, uh, of the seven years that we're dealing with. All right. Now, in that chain, in that chain of event, Tommy Ice has done some amazing work. Thomas Ice <coughs> marks a uh, noted parallel between these warnings and the seals of Revelation chapter 6. Tommy Ice marks a noted parallel between these warnings and the seals of Revelation chapter 6. In fact, I provided a chart for you in the Revelation notes when we taught Daniel Revelation a couple years ago. And I blatantly, uh, is it plagiarism if you cite your source? I don't think so. I, uh, I cited my source and I reproduced, with permission, the uh, chart that's found in, in Tommy Ice's material there that uh, takes you through from Matthew 24. It also included Mark and Luke. And Revelation chapter 6. Now, if that is a valid comparison to make, then it helps to pinpoint the seals to the first half of the 70th week of Daniel. All right. And, I, and I'm, that's the way I lean. There are still a couple of issues that I've not completely resolved in my mind, uh, but I'm, you know, 80% there as far as that goes. I, it actually bears no. Revelation 6 has no bearing on how we understand Matthew 24, so I don't need to take us through that here today. But when you're studying the, the seals and trumpets and bowls in Revelation, uh, there is tremendous amount of work trying to figure out uh, where do the seals and trumpets and bowls fit in those seven years. And in those seven years, if you have a first half and a second half, and we know that we do, then how do we, how do we place the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls? Some would put... Um, some would shove them all into the first half. Some would shove them all into the second half. Uh, some put two of those in the first half and one in the third half and so forth. And so there's disagreement between different uh, pre-tribulational, premillennial uh, dispensationalists related to that. So anyway, I would just uh, encourage you, if you don't have the Revelation notes, they're on the website. Go to uh, audio files, go to completed studies, find Revelation, and it's right there. You've got your PDF document right there and you can get the uh, the notes related to that um, as far as that goes anyway that's uh, pretty basically if you, let me just without taking you to the notes themselves very quickly here Revelation chapter 6 Revelation chapter 6 Revelation used to be real easy to flip to. You just go to the back, but now you've got maps and charts and concordances and all kinds of things. So <laughs> Now I aim for Jude and go to the next book. Revelation chapter 6. I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And it, it takes some work to do this, but this is the equivalent of the, um, the first item here. Uh, the, the white horse rider is not the Christ. The white horse rider is actually Antichrist. 
And uh, we can relate this to uh, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And then uh, he broke the second seal, and I heard the second living creature saying, Come, and another red horse rider went out. To him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. And so this second horse matches the second step in Matthew 24, where we hear about the wars and the rumors of wars. All right. And then... uh, the third seal and the third living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold a black horse. He who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. And so we see here um, the price uh, spiking in the food uh, items there and the famine aspects. Back in Matthew 24, we see this as well in uh, famines and earthquakes and things that are mentioned there. And then uh, horse four is death. Uh, Authority given over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. You have death. And uh, in Matthew 24, we have that here as well. Um, It's interesting, too, the fifth seal, you've got martyrs. Right. Uh, Breaks the fifth seal. You see the martyrs under the altar in heaven. Uh, Very quickly here in Matthew 24, we have martyrdom that's mentioned that you will be hated. They will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, be hated by all nations because of my name. And so you got martyrdom that's mentioned. You also in uh, Revelation 6, you've got um, uh, the great earthquake, the sun black as sackcloth, stars of the sky fall to the earth. You got astronomical phenomena that's mentioned in uh, the seals of Revelation 6. Uh, Here we have astronomical phenomena that are mentioned in Matthew 24, but not until the the end portion, not in the not yet portion. In any event, there's, uh, there's, there's more work that could be done on that. I just list that for you for your own research if you want to pursue that to a greater extent. Point C. Now, False Christs have appeared throughout the dispensation of the church and will continue to appear in the dispensation of Israel, the age of tribulation. In fact, they're going to ramp up. Uh, But we have had false Christs that appeared throughout the dispensation of the church. False Christs appeared uh, uh, after the crucifixion of the true Christ. Uh, False Christs appeared uh, in, in the century afterwards and uh, if you ever want to read about Bar Kokhba and you want to read about some of the Jewish rebellions, uh, there was another rebellion, by the way, after the 70 AD rebellion. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, but even uh, other false cries on into modern times and think about David Koresh right up the road here in Waco uh, all those years ago now and, and all these people claiming to be the Christ. Well, uh, once restraint is lifted and once Satan magnifies his uh, number one uh, counterfeit, uh, there will be a, an abundance, a, a plethora of additional false Christs out there that will all serve to, uh, to mislead many. We're told that uh, they're not fruitless in their endeavors. They actually mislead many. So it's going to ramp up. They will continue to appear, I think, on an accelerated basis in uh, the tribulation, the dispensation of age, Israel age. Of tribulation. Remember, as we break down our dispensations into ages, 
The tribulation is what is, is next to be unveiled for the plan of Israel. Israel operated in the age of promise from Abraham to Moses, the age of law from Moses to Jesus, the age of the incarnation during our Lord's first advent, incarnation and ministry, and then uh, coming up is the age of tribulation, followed by the age of millennial reign, the five different ages of the dispensation of Israel. All right. Now, let's talk about wars and rumors of wars. Point D. Wars and rumors of wars involving nations and kingdoms. Plus, famines and earthquakes comprise the not yet circumstances of the beginning of birth pangs. All of this combined comprise the not yet circumstances of the beginning of birth pangs. It's why we don't get sensational about current events and, oh, this is prophecy being fulfilled. Because no matter what war you want to look at, what earthquake you want to point to, all right, or other natural disasters, tsunamis and so forth, including World War I and World War II. We'll talk about that this morning. Um, all the terrible things we're looking at would simply be, if they are Scripture fulfilled, uh, are no more so than the last 20 centuries have been Scripture fulfilled. That uh, wars and rumors of wars. When have we not? What cent- point to a century where we've not had wars and rumors of wars? And was the 20th century bloodier than the previous? Yes, no denying that. And on an unprecedented scale. And I think the 21st century, if the Lord delays long enough, will be bloodier yet. Because uh, humanity has increased their capacity to inflict such violence. This is not to say though, that we're seeing prophecy fulfilled. Uh, at the very least, the most we can say is we are still looking at the beginnings of birth pangs and that the sign to, to be looking for for the end of the age is Antichrist in the temple. When he takes his seat in the temple, displays himself as being God. That's the, the sign. All right. So these are the not yet circumstances, the beginning of birth pangs. So we're dealing in the not yet. In fact, the entire church age is in the not yet. Because God's plan for Israel cannot resume until the church is removed. You understand that? Uh, The Antichrist himself is under restraint. He cannot be revealed until the restrainer is removed. We understand that. All right. So we have these not yet. Uh, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And then we have nation will rise against nation. That's ethnos versus ethnos. You'll see that vocabulary in a moment. And kingdom against kingdom. Basileia against Basileia. A lot of times the terms are used interchangeably. A lot of times the word for nation also is, applies to a kingdom. And uh, sometimes these terms are used interchangeably and sometimes these terms are distinct. Here they're both being used in parallel and, and so we need to understand why they're both in focus. Now wars and rumors of wars. We could think of this as in our modern terminology. You want to give it modern terminology. We could think of this as the difference between a hot war and a cold war. 
hot war and a cold war. Or rumors of war, since it's the hearing of a war instead of the actual war itself. Uh, instead of a cold war, uh, we might think of it as, um, what's the term they use today? The, the asymmetrical warfare, the non-conventional warfare. Terrorism is not, is, not, is not conventional warfare in the sense of uniformed soldiers on a battlefield fighting other uniformed soldiers on a battlefield. And so uh, it would be classified under the rumors of war standpoint where you get reports. You have hearing rather than a, an open war that, uh, that can be seen. Wars and rumors of wars. And it seems like um, a, 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 as, I, as I mentioned, there's this dream of peace. There's this dream of, well, World War I was supposed to be the war to end all wars. How long did that last? Until the next war, okay? Which ended up being bigger than, than World War I, all right? Some people think that World War II is just a continuation of World War I. Um, and there's a, a case that could be made for that. I disagree with that, but that's all right. Um, but when will the last war be? When, when, are we going to put an end to war? Will humanity put an end to war? The Bible says no. The Bible says God will put an end to war. And, uh, and so all these people trying to visualize world peace um, contrary to what the Scripture describes. The, uh, the spears and swords will be beaten into plowshares and pruning hooks, but only in the Father's design timetable under the Father's terms. It will come when the Prince of Peace himself is reigning after his military victory. Okay? Peace comes when your enemies are dead. And uh, that's an important concept too. Nations and kingdoms. Now, nations and kingdoms address conflicts among ethnic and political rivals. Nations and kingdoms address conflicts among ethnic and political rivals. I changed that word rival about seven times in the process of putting that slide together. I'm um, still not completely happy with it, but we'll leave it. Rivals. I think it's important that we understand what the Father did when He divided the nations at the Tower of Babel and when He divided humanity to operate under the laws of divine establishment as it pertains to uh, nationalism and what the Father's purpose was for that and how human history has proceeded and how the various attempts to defy that have always been satanically motivated. Ethnic and political rivals. All right, the term for nations is the term ethnos. E-T-H-N-O-S. Ethnos. It's where we get our English word ethnic. And this is why I used ethnic and political as an expression in this point of study. Ethnos. Um, the strongest number for ethnos is number 1484. Again, it's E-T-H-N-O-S, ethnos. has 162 uses in the New Testament. So you've got scads of places for it in the New Testament. Uh, it has more than that in the Old Testament, where it's uh, in the Septuagint. It's used to, uh, to render the, uh, the goy or the goyim. And remember, the term nation also is our term for Gentile. Same term. 
And it's often at the translator's discretion uh, as far as are we going to render this Gentile or are we going to render this nations? Because from the standpoint of Israel, anyone that's not Israel is a Gentile. Anyone that's not Israel are the nations. All right. So you have the Jewish nation, that is the, the Jewish people, the Jewish ethnos. And then every other nation, which is not Jewish, is Gentile. And so the term ethnos is rendered Gentile or is rendered nations. Same thing with uh, in the Hebrew, you have the goy or the goyim, referencing the Gentiles or referencing the nations. And then we have kingdoms, basileia, basileia. And um, a basileia is any territory that's controlled by a basileus, by a king. Nations and kingdoms. Also, is that right? Also used 162 times. There's a coincidence. I'm going to double check that because that's, that's ripe for a, a typo. <laughs> All right, but I'll double check that. Ethnos and Basileia. Anytime I see the same thing, I'm wondering, did I just copy and paste the wrong thing? But I'll double check that. Basileia. So we get the English basilica, right? A basilica in, uh, as, a, as a seat, as a, as a bishop's seat uh, of, of a church. All right. Now, they are different. Nations and kingdoms are different when it comes to um, even in our country, for example, we can illustrate. Um, we have the, uh, the, the Navajo Nation or the Cherokee Nation, neither of which actually has a kingdom, neither of which. Ha- I mean, they're they're granted their you know, sovereignty or they're 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 permitted to run their individual affairs, but. It's underneath the umbrella or it's within the boundaries of the United States of America. And, the, and we could think of the United States of America as a kingdom, as a basileia, as a sovereign entity among the powers of the earth. And that's what it comes down to, among the powers of the earth. And this is the highest level of, or, of human organization that's been biblically sanctioned. The idea of, of a global governance was never the, the Father's plan, not until such time as he hands it to the Son of Man when Jesus Christ will reign to the four corners of the earth. But until such time, the judgment of Babel stands and the Babel dispersion, which we'll see here in a moment, the Babel dispersion divides out the, the three divisions of humanity into 70 classifications, all right? And the 70 divisions, and when you study the table of nations in Genesis 10, the 70 divisions of Gentiles are scattered abroad the face of the earth. And that's the largest structure. And so those basileia, those kingdoms, what we think of today as nations, but those kingdoms, those nation states, all right, that's the highest level we have. And they are truly rivals. Even if they're allies, they remain rivals. They may still be in alliance, okay? The United States is pretty friendly with Canada. We haven't had a war for a while now, okay? We have had wars in the past, but not for a while now. And yet we are rivals for a lot of things. We're going to be rivals for resources. We're going to have disputes over fishing and oil territory. We're going to have disputes over all kinds of things because we're rivals. We're peers might be a better word. That's one of the ones I changed out when I removed the word rivals. We're peers. We're rivals. We're equals, okay? Not in the sense of 
we're not equal in power, equal in wealth, equal in righteousness. We're not, but we are equal in the sense that we are independent, sovereign states. That's what it comes down to, is the sovereignty. You understand? So, you can have multiple nations within a kingdom. You can have client nations within a kingdom. Okay? Uh, when Jesus was born, Herod was the king of the Jews, but he was a client king subject to the Roman Empire. Okay? And so the Roman Empire was the overall sovereignty, and Herod, at the sufferance of Rome, uh, was the king of, of Judea. Okay? And I think we can understand that. As I illustrated, our, our, the, the conquered Native Americans have their nations still to this day, but they're not sovereign kingdoms in the biblical sense of Basileia. And so nations versus kingdoms. And a lot of times, if you have a kingdom that's made up of different nations, then you're going to have built into that, you're going to have strife, right? How united has the United Kingdom been all these years? <laughs> it wouldn't take long to see the, uh, you know, you have Ireland and Scotland and, and Wales and, and uh, the difference between uh, different ethnicity, uh, ethnic groups within the United Kingdom. Uh, I was united militarily and even then had some uh, issues. All right, so nations and kingdoms. And this is the way it's always been. It's the way it's always going to be until total victory and sovereignty is, is vested into Jesus Christ. All right, let's... Uh, we're clear on Ethnos and Basileia. Let's go to Genesis 10. Take a look at it. Genesis chapter 10. What's really funny is um, when I was uh, a, a uh, subject of the government school system years ago, I was taught that the divine institution of nations was a fiction and that the nation-state was a European invention after the Treaty of Westphalia. That basically what we understand today as modern nations never existed prior to the 17th century. That prior to 1648, there was no such thing as a nation-state. Okay? And so everything in the Middle Ages, everything in the ancient world, everything... Uh, those weren't nations, I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that. Well, you had empires and you had tyrants and you had blah, blah, blah. Um, and it, it was really kind of schizophrenic, but um, I think it's actually delusional, but they kept insisting on it. Okay? Kept, there were no nations prior to 1648. And the whole piece of Westphalia, the, all the creation of modern England, modern France, modern Germany, and all this stuff, that's all just modern. Before that, there were no nations. Okay. And that's their myth because that's what they're trying to return to. They want to, re they want to create, there's no nations. We're just a, a world community. So there's no borders. There's no uh, regional laws. It's all on a global thing. Well, Genesis 10 was a bit before the, the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, There have always been nations since Babel. All right, since Babel. Now, all right, the flood is in 6, 7, and 8. They get off the boat. And there's the rainbow and capital punishment in chapter 9. Um, and then the 
Toledoth, the generations, the descendants of Noah. These are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togerma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. And so there they are. All right. And um, that includes me because I'm Germanic and of a Japhetic descent. So there it is. All right. Uh, now notice verse 5. From these, the coastlands of the Goyim, the nations, the Ethnoi, were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language. And the full details on that come in chapter 11, but it's mentioned here in chapter 10. Each one according to his language, according to, his, to their families, into their nations, into their kingdoms. So here's the distinction. Now, this is the first reference to uh, lands, language, families, nations. It'll come back two more times in this chapter. And the order is slightly different in the second and third time. Um, so we're looking at verse 20 and verse 31 for the second and third time that they come up. In verses 6 and following, you have Ham and their descendants. I won't read through all those. Um, but when you... Uh, Break it down. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham according to their, notice, their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. So it's the Father's intent for humanity to be divided, not for a united humanity, but for a divided, that is, to a segmented, distinct families, nations, and, or what we might call clans, okay? Families, tribes, clans, and uh, nations with linguistic distinction according to their languages by their lands and by their nations. And then um, Shem and his descendants in 21 and following. In verse 31, we see specifically, these are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. And uh, the summary statement for all the Noahic descendants, we're all Adamic, we're all Noahic, we understand that. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. And that's the design of the Father. That's the design of the Father. All right. So subpoint A. You're following me now. This is 8D2A. Some people don't like nested outlines. I love them. 8D2A. Genesis designates lands with an assigned language populated by families organized into nations. Genesis designates lands with an assigned language populated by families organized into nations. And this is the structure. In, in many ways, this is, the, this is the logical extension of what happens in multiple family units. Remember, it starts with volition, 
the individual, Adam alone, and then marriage. God gives Eve to Adam. And you've got laws of divine establishment that pertain to marriage, a man and woman together in marriage. Then you have family, the laws of divine establishment pertaining to family. But then as the families start to spread, how are the families organized? How do the families interact with each other? What are the what are the what is the system that governs interactions between families? And uh, it doesn't take long before all of a sudden now you need to have a society. You need to have uh, a structure whereby there, there are standards, there are laws, there are rules, there are statutes whereby um, uh, disputes between families are reconciled rather than just uh, the father and his sons grabbing their swords and going at it, okay? Which, you know, that's pretty tribal. Uh, but if, in fact... The father's got a better plan than just tribalism via violence. Then maybe there's a uh, there's provision in Scripture for families to have structure over them. And that's what's designed here in terms of the clans and the nations. Israel was set up under the same lines with their tribes, with their nation. Okay, and so we can understand as uh, as that works. Daniel stipulates God's control over kings and kingdoms. Daniel stipulates God's control over kings and kingdoms. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 4. Let's take a look at that. Because here, this is centuries later, millennia later. And we find that it still is the Father's purpose to operate on this basis. Here's two where I said earlier, I think believers with doctrine can be stable, whereas others are terrified over current events and what might happen next and blah, blah, blah. All right, Daniel. Daniel 2.21, Daniel 4, 17, 25, and 32, all in Daniel 4. We also have a reference in Daniel 5.19 to peoples, nations, and languages. It still is the structure. It remains the structure in the Gospels. It remains the structure at the end of time in Revelation, which we'll see here next. Daniel 2.21. Daniel said in verse 20, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. It is He who changes the times and the epics, God's in charge. He is in charge of all human history. And because all judgments have been given to the Son, we combine that verse with this verse and we say Jesus Christ controls history. And that is true for the church age. Jesus Christ controls history. He, he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. The ruler we have is the ruler that Jesus Christ has installed. Not the ruler we've installed. Americans get confused because we vote. And we have uh, we've established a nation that we say is of the people, by the people, for the people. And uh, in our representative form of government, that is true as far as the earthly realm is concerned. Absolutely. I don't dispute that. The, uh, the elections have consequences and the, and the ruler we have is the ruler of the, that the people chose. That's in the earthly realm. What's the, what about the spiritual realm? Who is the ruler that we have? The ruler that God chose. 
And so why did the people choose what they chose? Because that's what God chose. Try wrapping your mind around that. All right. Well, I mean, functionally, it's like God's sovereignty and election in choosing us for, uh, for eternal life and our acceptance of the gospel by faith. It's the same conundrum. It's the same how do we, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty and man's volition. And fortunately, we can and we do and God does. All right. So it is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives to wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding and all of this. And so this is uh, part of uh, Daniel's ministry as the dream is revealed to him and as he's going to be able to go and relate that dream to uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. And as he outlines the progression from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, as he's given the whole course of Gentile history. All right. Powerful chapter, right? Two chapters later in chapter 4. And we have um, Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And we have, uh, let me get over to Daniel chapter 4. Another vision, another opportunity for Daniel to interpret. But you'll note in verse 17, uh, when... um, the decree comes down from heaven. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. It's a fascinating realm of, an, of angelic creation that observes human history unfold. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over mankind, the realm of mankind and bestows on it whom, whom he wishes, and notice, sets over it the lowliest of men, the basest of men. Now, when it's God's purpose to inflict discipline upon a nation, the, the most godless, wicked men are put there as uh, instruments of God's displeasure. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar has to learn this lesson. In fact, this is why he's given the mind of a beast. He, that you, in verse 25, that you be driven away from mankind in your dwelling place, be with the beasts of the field, and you'll be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that El Elyon, the Most High God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. We are not animals. We are made in the image of God. We are humanity. We are humanity, the realm of creation that identifies with the hypostatic union of His beloved Son. And He has organized us into families and nations with languages and land and territory. We're not animals roaming wherever we want to go and mating with whatever we want to mate with and eating whatever we can kill. And We're not animals. We've got to understand that. And... Uh, Likewise, verse 32, similar statement. Uh, As long as we're in Daniel, we can spot in chapter 5 the reference here as Daniel's rebuking a a later king. He's rebuking Belteshazzar and uh, saying, you know, you haven't learned the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and there's nothing that's going to humble you. So God's going to remove your glory here. 
But he says, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. Do you see that? This is a description of national sovereignty, but it's all by delegation. The father put Nebuchadnezzar in this position of responsibility. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. And then again, he had to learn that in verse 21 there, the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind. He sets over it whom he wishes. See, God is in charge. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you have exalted yourself. So God designates lands with an assigned language, populated by families, organized into nations. Daniel stipulates God's control over kings and kingdoms. And uh, we got, I'm out of time. Goodness. Um, Acts 17:26 demonstrates God's purpose in every nation in their designated land. We'll see that next week. And then finally, in Revelation 5, 9, illustrates that Jesus Christ worked on the cross for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus Christ's work on the cross was for every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Worthy are you. They sang the song, Worthy are you, the Lamb that was slain. For you have purchased with your own blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So there might be some variety in, in the specific terms that are employed, but the concepts are important to recognize. And it's important for us to, to break it down on this way so that we don't get lost and confused related to um, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And we don't fall for some, uh, I think, some dangerous things that are out there related to that. And I'll spend next week breaking that down. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thy word is truth. I pray, Father, that... Uh, believers in this nation would identify with their role as salt and light. That believers in this nation would be praying for the, the welfare of the city to which you've sent us. That, Father, we would be prayerfully strengthening our, our uh, local and state and national leaders. And that we would not uh, sit in the seat of scoffers and simply mock and ridicule and, and criticize the rulers, but to identify that the rulers you've given us are the ones you're disciplining us with. And Father, we want to shine forth with brightness, with understanding, with grace. Let our speech always be seasoned with salt. And Father, uh, uh, we understand that our nation's struggles aren't going to be provided for militarily or economically or politically. We need to, we need to uh, seek your will spiritually. And, uh, and Father, that uh, your children would seek your face. And then we can, we can be blessed by the leaders that will reflect the, uh, the blessings upon this land. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Appreciate your making.